Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, Cannonball listeners. Well, we tried. Daniel and I really tried our damnedest to make Milton a one and done, but as you'll hear in the episode, we failed miserably. We had about an hour to record and thought we could speed through, but as we get near the end, you'll hear me make the impromptu suggestion to turn this into a two-parter. Ultimately, that's probably the best decision. As violently ambivalent as I am about Paradise Lost, and as much as I want to be done with it, it is a work that's really too complex to talk about in one hour. So we're breaking it up. On this show, we get through our personal reflections on reading and a kind of general synopsis of the work, as well as some background information on Milton and the English Civil War. Next month, we'll jump back in with an examination of Satan, the nature of evil and goodness, and Milton's impact on poetry in English. So stay tuned for more epic puritanical talk. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some of the other podcasts on the network, like Heather Tiesco's Renaissance English History Podcast. Heather also has a new project she's launching, the Tudor Radio Network. The Tudor Radio Network is the world's first station devoted to transporting you to the 16th century, no matter where you're at. Available online, it features original programming and your favorite Tudor podcasts, as well as music. No matter where you are or what time it is, you can switch it on and be guaranteed to hear something either from or about 16th century England. Head to TudorRadioNetwork.com for more information. And be sure to stop by TheCannonballPodcast.wordpress.com. We've been getting a little more active on the blog as of late, so see our most recent scribblings. And one last thing. If you're in the New York area and need reading and writing or standardized test tutoring, just let me know. Send an email to ClaudeMoInc at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. I have a tutoring business on the side, and I can help you out with whatever you might need to do in terms of reading and writing. I can also do literary lectures on demand. I'm not entirely certain what situations would require that, but I can guarantee quality infotainment. Thanks, and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Dr. Claude Myron Guzer. With me, as always, is Daniel Doherty, and we're here to tackle Milton and get it done. Daniel, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good. We are uh, – this is this is definitely one of those that like uh, – well, we set ourselves up to be completists when we when we made our, our mission declaration. So, so we did have to do this and, uh, you know – uh, I think as, as well as you said before we started recording, like you're you're in, in for this to strike while the iron's hot and get it done. But you know what? We can still make good radio even out of a work <laughs> that we weren't particularly jazzed about. Um, well, I, yeah. I, th- that, that's the thing. I'm violently ambivalent. And <laughs> I, I know that this speaks to my own psychology, my own concerns, my own neuroses. But I, I really am – that's the only way that I can I – can, talk about this work is that I am violently ambivalent. 
I, I think if anybody reads the blog, you get some of that ambivalence yeah. just up in in what I wrote on there. But uh, there, there are a couple of other reasons why this poem gets under my underwear, as uh, William Carlos Williams said about the works of Hart <laughs> Crane. It, it, it's so a part of the fabric of the way I think about things. And it's it's I wish it wasn't a part of the fabric of the way that I think about things. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's okay, I'll I'll talk about that later. But this is Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, it's a major work of poetry in English. Uh, it's it's one of those real heavy hitters. Uh it, it's one that you kind of have to read if you're going to know anything about poetry in English. And it's one, for better or worse, that that kind of made this intervention in how poetics in the English language function. And we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. Yeah, and, it's, um, and, I, and I would also um, just sort of uh, give everyone an idea of just how foundational it, this work is and everything. It's one of those works where when you're reading it, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this common expression is actually a quote from this thing I'm reading. Um, yeah, it's exactly. one of those. It's one of those. The, what what doesn't come to us from Shakespeare comes to us from Milton. Yeah, I, I'm thoroughly convinced of that. Uh, so, Daniel, was this your first time reading this? Um, it was not. Uh, this is the second time I've I've read it. The first was for a um, like uh, you know f- uh, sophomore level uh, uh, English survey class. That mm-hmm. I took mm-hmm. um, as a I, I went to a, a public liberal arts university, so I had a uh, had a lot of core to <laughs> to get under yeah, my belt. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that was my first that was my first encounter with it. As I recall, I read maybe the first couple of cantos. I guess we'll call them. Um, yeah, the first two books. Yeah, first two books. Yeah, thank you. And uh, pretty quickly, just lost the plot. Uh, or not, not literally lost the plot. I mean, the plot's pretty easy to follow. Um, but pretty quickly, the wind went out of my sails and actually reading it. And I just kind of, I just kind of took the, took the C on, on the exams. Uh, yeah. It's okay. Do you want to hear something really fascinating? Uh, yeah. This is kind of an aside, but, uh, way back when, when we started this, I was talking about some of the archival work that I did, uh, back when I was in Boston at, I, I wasn't going to Harvard University. I was, uh, sort of, in the archives at Harvard doing research on what was going on. And uh, one of the things that I discovered was that when they read Paradise Lost in the late 19th century, they did not read the whole thing. They read the first two books. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, all right. That's sort of commonly <laughs> what was so assigned. So that's usually where people punch out. Cool. <laughs> So no, it was fascinating to me. It, like the, yeah, so people have been uh, checking out after the first two books since eighteen eighty three. So uh, I'm know. I'm proud to carry on uh, this proud tradition. <laughs> but it was it was really fascinating. the The first two books were the ones that were considered okay. This is what you need to know of Milton, and let's move on. Uh, and another fascinating thing: Milton has had uh, kind of a a stronger afterlife in America or in the U S than he has in, in England in some ways. Cause he's still the King killer. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. The, that, that I think taints the view of him in, in Britain in ways that it doesn't quite in the U S just because of our sort of foundational mythology. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the, the other strange thing or not really strange, but the other fascinating thing we found in the archives. Um, Okay, so the the first time I read this was kind of in a, a similar situation. It was a, a, an undergrad class. It was one of those core classes that you had to take as an English major. And I actually read the whole thing. And I was really – I'm not trying to – that's no dig at you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I was really astounded by it uh, just because – I, w- I was astounded by it in the same way that I was astounded by by Dante, and I think we talked about this when we did Dante. Mm-hmm. That this is a, a, a depth of intelligence and thoughtfulness through a theological lens that I had not had in my upbringing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it was really astounding to me that someone could be this thoughtful 
about the the whole theological project. Yeah. And the the analysis of evil is really extraordinarily striking. Or at, at least it was to me when I was younger. Now I'm kind of bored by it. But it, it if if you want to know about evil and nihilism, I mean, well, go to Othello first, but to see why it can be appealing, yeah. Go to to Milton. Um, I I read it first when I was twenty one. I just turned forty one, so this is twenty years. <laughs> twenty years of Milton. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've taught it several years in a row. I've reread it several times. I've meditated on it heavily. I have a sort of general. I have my own personal sort of general theory about how it fits into the writing that comes after, and I'm ready to be done with it. Sure. Well, let's, well, let's consider this the, uh, the the putting putting Milton to bed, and I and I guess we can uh, I guess we can start where where Milton starts, or at least the the edition I was uh, I was reading where he he explains um, how he's writing this poem to purge poetry of that awful barbarism rhyme. Okay, there's <laughs> there's a lot that's going on in this. Okay, um, when when Milton was in college, he he wrote a poem. It was an elegy for uh, a friend of his, a loose friend, someone he didn't know too extraordinarily well, but a contemporary of his, a peer of his, who had died in a shipwreck. Uh, it was uh, this this young man named Edward King, and at the 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 school where he was, the there was a kind of general. Okay, let's get some of the boys to write about Edward King. Let's write eulogies for him. And I, I've seen a, a copy of the volume. I haven't seen the original. I have held in my hands an original printing of Paradise Lost. No, not Paradise Lost, of um, Milton's first poems. That's a long story. But um, the I, I've seen a reprint of the the eulogies for, for, um, for King. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's it's striking because I, I keep saying striking, but every one of the poems is in some kind of couplet form. Uh, couplets were the specifically heroic couplets mm-hmm. were the way that you made English verse in the 17th century sound official. It was the verse form that was used to approximate translations from the Latin. Yeah, and. The last poem that comes in the volume is Milton's Lycidas. Already out of the gate, he's got his style and he's got his argument for the verse that early. Lycidas um, is not in blank verse. And I mean, it, sorry, not in blank verse. It is, it, it's not in. Um, heroic couplets. Yeah. He could write in heroic couplets, but Lycidas is something else altogether. And it's, it's. I mean, you can really read it as kind of, it's not a forerunner of Paradise Lost, but it does kind of sort of give you an idea of how different and how weird his writing was. Yeah. Okay. Um, couplets were the way that you showed your elegance and showed your wit. But Milton has uh, two points to make here. One, the old epics, if you actually know your Latin and Greek, you know it don't rhyme. Yeah. Um, English is this weird syllabic language, and the Romance languages that came after uh, Latin kind of work in this weird way where sometimes it's syllabic, sometimes this, sometimes that, but they, they incorporate rhyme because it's such an easy trick to get away with if you're writing in Spanish or Italian and even to a degree in French. Um, Milton points out that historically this is not accurate. The other thing that, that sort of happens with Milton, why he wants an unadorned style or what he calls an unadorned style is there's a theological argument mixed in with his aesthetic argument. Um, the, the blank verse is there because you don't need to quote unquote artificially gussy it up. The, the beauty of the thing should be shown naturally through the thing itself. Um, that's because God already made it as perfect as it could be made. Yeah. All right. The other part of the argument has to do with the poetics of enjambment. Um, 
enjambment is when the the logical sense of the line or, or the grammatical sense of the line stretches from the end of one line and into the next. Um, okay, that can be tough to just kind of hear me say, but <laughs> the opposite the opposite of enjambment is an in-stopped line where the grammatical sense of the line stops at the end of the line. So you get one line that is sort of like its own complete entity, then you get the next line that's that's its own complete entity. And um, Milton wants to argue, like he uses enjambment again and again and again as a kind of natural, or in his terms, uh, natural fluidity from line to line to line, so you don't get the artificial stoppage at the end of the line. And if you even open up just book one of Paradise Lost, look at how many lines are enjammed. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, sing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Okay. Um, enjambment occurs in the first line, the second line, fourth line, Sixth line, seventh line, ninth line, tenth line. Um, he's carrying the grammatical sense across the line and into the next line to yeah. create this kind of organic unity. Because for him, that's how this is supposed to function. God already created an organic biological unity. Anything we do to kind of finesse that is idolatry. Yeah. All right, so that's the verse. <laughs> with, yeah, with the, and I guess with that we can. Um, I guess we haven't even we haven't even said what the poem's about, have we? A, a synopsis, Claude. If uh... all right, <laughs> if anybody's still paying attention at this point. All right, so uh, we begin with Satan. Uh, this begins uh, like most epics do in Medios Race, in the middle of the action. Uh, Satan has just reached the bottom of uh, hell. He's floating on a lake of fire. And the first thing he does is rouses the troops. He and the fallen angels are all sort of floating around stunned trying to figure out what's going on he rouses uh the the other fallen angels his old generals to get up and sort of make as he says uh a heaven of hell yeah so they they dig the gold out of hell because hell is filled with gold and they build the most beautiful palace in the world it's pandemonium that's literally the name which means uh place of all demons right yeah pandemonium Uh, yeah Exactly. So they heroically build pandemonium, and then we get a parliament of devils, which in this weird way is an echo of the politics. Well, it's an echo of parliamentary politics or kind of burlesque of parliamentary politics. Um, the By manipulating the parliament, Satan uh, gets himself elected to go destroy God's creation and what he can't destroy then at least wreck. Yeah. All right. So he flies out of the gates of hell, and that's where he meets sin and death. Sin is his daughter, and death is his child that he got upon sin. Uh, sin popped out of his head uh, at the moment that he was about ready to go to battle with God's forces as a kind of mock Athena, as, as Athena sort of literally sprung from the head of Zeus, sin springs from the head of of Satan back when he's Lucifer waging war in heaven. Um, Death is her child, which keeps trying to consume her and consume anything and everything it sees. And Satan tells her that if he can wreck this new place that he's heard about in rumor, then he will unleash death and let it eat whatever it wants. All right, so Satan flies through chaos, uh, a chaos that's inspired in part by Lucretius's On the Nature of Things, and he makes his way to Earth. All right, in book three, that's book one and two. In book three, uh, we get this dialogue between God and Jesus and the angels. God has already anticipated what Satan's going to do because God has already set everything in motion. Uh, Milton, as a good Calvinist, believes in predestination and believes that all of this was foreordained. And that's really the argument of the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, if 
if God is all good and all loving, then why does evil exist? Okay, well, this is why. Uh, to yeah, justify yeah. the ways of God to man, here's why evil exists. Okay, so God and Jesus have this uh, conversation. God's kind of an imperious jerk, and Jesus doesn't come across much better. <laughs> He's really uh, – uh, what, what struck me about this part is that God like God basically spends the first part of this book dis- explaining how he can he can wash his hands of all of this. Yeah, like, none like, of this is on him at all. Even though he's literally the author of all things, he, he cannot hold any responsibility for it. Well, okay, the, <clears throat> not, not to get too, um, not to get into the theological weeds while we're still doing the plot recital. I'm, I'm very sorry, but it's just really it, it, when I was reading it, really jumped out at me. No, I mean that's that's okay. The the literary critic William Empson uh, wrote a whole book where he argues, hey, this is all God's fault. Like, if he was the one who set everything in motion, and he teases all of this this out, uh, if if God was really the one who set everything in motion, then all of this is at the feet of God. Evil is God's product. So anyway, yeah. um, if you want to read Emson, do. He's he's a, a, a trip. All right. So Satan gets to Earth, and he evades, he evades some angel guards, and he sees Adam and Eve, and. His reaction to Adam and Eve, his reaction to Earth is to sort of fall in love with the place. But he he hates it because he knows it's not his. He can't have it. He is banished from it. He's not welcome here. So he decides because he desires Adam and Eve, he will destroy them and he will bring them down to hell with him. Okay. So uh, then he's chased off by Gabriel. Okay. So Eve has a nightmare and God sends Raphael uh, with a warning to talk to Adam. And so the bulk of the middle of the poem is sort of taken up with Raphael's uh, conversation with Adam. Raphael yeah. is kind of Captain Exposition, if I can borrow a phrase from Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> yes. Um, he, he gets a good chunk of the book to sort of tell what happens. Um, in book five, he begins to narrate the – basically, God wants Raphael to give Adam a heads up so that Adam – Adam will be forewarned and forearmed, and so that God can say, "Hey, he knew this wasn't <laughs> right. an accident." I tried to tell it's him. I, I warned you, dog. I, I told you, bro. You know, yeah, yeah. All right. So anyway, um, book five and si- books five and six really tell the story of the war in heaven. Uh, Lucifer was the most beautiful angel. He was the second in command, and then God arbitrarily invented Jesus and said, "Hey, worship him. He's now above you, as I am." And that's when Lucifer becomes Satan, more or less. Uh, I'll get into this a little bit later, but one of the things that happens to Lucifer is he becomes self-aware. There's the trauma of displacement. He understands that now he is not who he had been. He can't think of himself in the same way as he was. He is not the most powerful anymore. There's something that's been placed above him. And that trauma causes him to feel as if he is separate from creation. Mm -hmm. He is a thing apart now. And he's self-aware. That's one of my problems with Milton is that self-awareness, self-consciousness is always indicative of a fallen state. Um, we can talk about uh, possibilities for that later, but that's that's sort of the crux here. When you know that you are an individual, then you are already part of the fallen. Yeah. Okay. So Lucifer becomes self-aware. He becomes Satan. He he gets uh, as many angels as possible on his side. There's a bunch of dialogue back and forth, and then they go to war with all of the good angels. They invent gunfire, uh, gunpowder, and uh, try to blow a bunch of other angels away. Um, a bunch of the good angels drop a mountain on the bad angels. Uh, this is the first time angels have ever felt pain, but they can't be destroyed. And then Jesus shows up in uh, in the Merkaba and basically blows them out of heaven as if he's uh, sort of commanding a giant nuclear warhead. Uh, that gets us back to Raphael's discussion with uh, Adam and Eve, and he he goes on to sort of tell Adam more about the creation. Book seven is really weird, and I still can't get my head around it. He retells the story of Genesis. I don't know why Milton stopped mm-hmm. to retell the whole story of the creation of the world. 
Yeah. But he does. And <laughs> he does it really well. Um, Raphael tells Adam, uh, well, Adam asks about science and he wants to know how the planets move and stuff. And Raphael kind yeah. of says, well, listen, um, keep your knowledge within bounds. Don't use knowledge to try to master things. The reason we have knowledge, the reason we have science is to be in awe of the world around us, which is kind of this interesting eco-aesthetic argument. Sure. Uh, and yeah. if you want to see it played out uh, in contemporary form, watch the Jim Jarmusch movie, um, Only Lovers Left Alive. Part of what Jarmusch does is weaves this kind of eco-aesthetic argument into this weird vampire film that he made. <laughs> but it's sort of like there's there's a use of science and technology to try to dominate the use of science and technology for power. And then there's also this use of science and technology for, well, for awe. Yeah. Like how wonderful is it that you know we can understand how a black hole – kind of sort of works and to contemplate you know physics or yeah and and it's kind of and it's kind of the 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 house ideology of the emerging scientific revolution that were some milton's contemporaries um exactly this is kind of the uh the sort of the early royal society types the uh i guess he's a little bit later but like say you know like isaac newton um robert cook these kind of guys they they were very explicit in like some of their in their private letters writing to each other they were thrilled at this project they had come upon to better and more wholly understand god's creation which was there and which and which would then bring them closer to comporting their mind with god's own which was it was it was a transcendent project almost Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of what, what Milton is anticipating. Okay, so Satan disguised as a serpent tempts Eve through vanity. Uh, he claims that she can become as powerful as Adam if she eats the fruit of, of forbidden knowledge. Um, she eats it, and then Adam, she, she tempts Adam with it, uh, and Adam eats it out of fear. Uh, he doesn't want to lose her, and he fears that she's going to die and he's going to be alone, so he eats it. And then they have drunk sex. Okay, so Jesus comes down to judge Adam and Eve. One more time, Jesus does not come across very well in Paradise Lost. Uh, he really comes across as a jerk. Satan returns to hell and finds that it's all gone to hell. Uh, it's a, a complete and utter mess and God, as part of his curse on uh, Satan, transforms Satan and the rest of the denizens of hell into snakes and serpents and demons and weirdness. Uh, uh, the other thing that happens once uh, Adam and Eve eat the apple is that time starts. Uh, the stars start to move. Mm-hmm. The the Earth starts to revolve around the sun. Things begin to go in motion and things begin to change. Death is unleashed on the world and starts to consume. Okay, so uh, Adam and Eve make up. They'd been fighting this whole time uh, since they'd uh, eaten the apple. Um, or I guess since they woke up from their drunk sex and they, they, they make up, they, they pray spontaneously. God accepts the prayer. Michael comes down to kick them out, but God tells Michael, okay, don't leave them in despair because if, if it's, if the punishment is too harsh, well, they're just going to kill themselves. Like why go on? So what Michael does is 
vouchsafes Adam a vision of what the future will be. So it's basically Michael giving this gigantic history lesson. And the way I always teach it is sort of like when Homer goes to get the, the talking crusty doll in the Simpsons and he's <laughs> right. talking to the, 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 the owner of the shop and he says, you know, I'll take that talking crusty doll. The owner says, okay, I'll sell it to you, but beware the doll is cursed. Well, that's bad. Yes, but it comes with a free frozen yogurt. That's good. <laughs> that's the good. yogurt is also cursed. That's bad. But it comes with your choice of toppings. That's good. It just goes on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. um, the the point is that everything that, that Michael shows Adam, it, it begins looking like, okay, this is going to be good. And then something happens like, oh, that's bad. But they rebuild again. Well, that's good. But then they decide they can build a tower to touch the heavens and God punishes them all. Well, that's bad. They decide to build closer to, to the ground. That's good. Then they enslave their neighbors. That's bad. So <laughs> yeah. it's like, okay, okay, there's no way out here. It's tr- but, it's, um, it truly is the, uh, the experience of reading history, though. So, you know, I, Milton's got us there. But uh, but anyway, so by the end of it, um, Michael sort of consoles Adam by pointing out that God is in control, and the whole point is that evil is bad. But that's kind of a dumb way to say it. Yeah. But evil is bad, but uh, it does allow good to shine more fully because it makes good something that's not compulsory. But something that you do of your own free will generously, something that you give, and it's it's what makes goodness goodness. Yeah. So Adam is consoled, and he and Eve head off towards their new fortunes east of Eden. Okay. Where do we go from here? <laughs> so – to, to get a little little bit of I, – okay, I, I ranted a little bit already about the verse and what's sort of going into this. But to give some background on this, you have to know a little bit about Milton. He was born in 1608 and he died in 1674. He was raised in a Protestant Puritan household. Oh, and by the way, um, you and Ben did a fantastic job of laying out oh, yeah. some of the, the – I guess the basic terms for Puritanism. Oh, thank you, thank I, I you so much. I was I was a little worried that uh, well, as I as I said to Ben after we recorded, I asked him like, did we ever actually talk define what Puritanism was? And we couldn't remember. No, <laughs> but thank I, you for uh, thank you for saying that we did a good job. No, because I, what I what I loved about that conversation was you kept pointing out that Puritan could mean a lot of different things. It's an yeah, umbrella yeah. or or a handle for the bundle, but it doesn't quite account for everything. On the one hand, you've got the the Massachusetts Puritans, the the sort of stark, stern uh, Salem Calvinists. On the other hand, you've got Milton, who's Puritanism, I mean, honestly, if I'm reading this in the way that I think is right, kind of comes close to this weirdo Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. Then you've got uh, Philip Sidney, who was a Puritan, if I remember right, uh, who had this kind of millennial view of Elizabeth, who was a royalist. So you've got all these different ways of reading Puritanism. And, and I thought that was a, a very useful thing that y'all pointed out. It's it's an umbrella term. Um, his father was a, a, a Protestant Puritan who had been more or less disowned from his Catholic family. So his father yeah. had sort of jumped ship. Um, but his father, the, the family was relatively well off. I mean, middle class, upper middle class, what have you. Uh, Milton knew his languages early. Uh, as a Puritan or as a Calvinist, he, he knew he had to be able to read uh, the Bible and he wanted to get as accurate as possible. So, okay, here's an idea. At age of 13, he was translating the Hebrew Psalms into English. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What were you doing at 13? Uh, I, I could play Mario Brothers to beat the band, but Hebrew is beyond me. Um, he had his Latin, Italian, Spanish, French, uh, I believe Greek and Hebrew, uh, a polyglot. And he knew them early, perfected them early. And he, he's, he's one of those writers. I, I mean, I, I kind of think about it like uh, James Joyce where he incorporated that linguistic knowledge 
into a lot of what he did. Yeah. Uh, You can't escape that. Okay. So he went to Christ College, Cambridge. That's where he wrote uh, Lycidas for Edward King, and I sort of already talked about that. After the MA, he traveled abroad. He went to, I believe, France – I think parts of Spain, but he spent some time in Italy. The The legend is that he met Galileo. He may or may not have. Uh, I'm not quite sure at this point if that's apocryphal or not. Yeah. But the Galileo pops up in some of his writings, uh, particularly Paradise Lost. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, he married three times, the first in 1642. Uh, she left him after a month. <laughs> I think that gives you an idea of what Milton was like as a husband. Um, yeah, yeah. When he when he gets back to England, he he starts writing on religious and political subjects. He writes Areopagitica, which is a, a sort of defense of the free press to a degree. Uh, but after his wife leaves him after a month, he starts writing tracts uh, trying to legitimate divorce. Uh, his wife's parents sort of – affect this reunion, but I believe she dies in childbirth. Um, during uh, he, during the, the English Civil War, he's staunchly on the parliamentarian side uh, yeah. with the rest of the Puritans. And after the Civil War, he's established as um, kind of chief propagandist. Uh, he is the head of the press and he does all of the translation and kind of propaganda work for the Cromwell government. And here is this weird little tidbit. Um, by 1654, he's completely blind. So uh, his eyesight had been going for the past decade, I believe, but uh, he needed help with the translation duty. So he gets this uh, minor bureaucrat in the government to start helping him out. The minor, minor bureaucrat is Andrew Marvell. Um, huh. Marvell is uh, one of those um, other great sort of late uh, metaphysical poets that you read about. But Marvell yeah. worked under uh, Milton as a translator. Well, Marvell found the work to be a little too taxing just for him, and he had to subcontract the work and bring in. Um, another younger helper, this uh, up-and-coming, bright, intelligent dude, John Dryden. John Dryden, <laughs> wow, <yeah>. the first <laughs> poet laureate of England. So in a room for a couple of years, you've got Milton, Marvell, and Dryden. What they talked about, we have no record. Okay, so um, after the Restoration, Milton was nearly executed because he was a king killer. He was firmly in the product, uh, the the Puritan Cromwellian Commonwealth branch, and he had you know advocated for killing Charles the for executing Charles the First. Yeah, um, he, he, he was he was actually pretty. Um, it would be extremely anachronistic to use terms like left wing or right wing in these situations. Um, but he, he sort of ended up on kind of more radical – his weight fell on the more radical side of the, the sort of the ideologies at work in all this. He was, he was an out-dedicated, straight-up Republican in that yes. – I mean he was counter not only to royalty but also aristocracy, uh, mm-hmm. which was like – basically he would have been considered a loony leftist, <laughs> I, yeah. I think, in the context of the day. Yeah. Well, I mean and that – there was a theological reason for that oh, yeah, in, in his eyes – and he talks about it in the last two books of Paradise Lost. Aristocracy is an artificial elevation of men above other men, of humans above other humans. And um, it's a, a, a creation of an idol. Idolatry, it's, it's the one thing that he, he gets on about because I, I, I think that – Okay, pride is connected to idolatry because pride is making an idol of yourself. Aristocracy is making an idol of a class. Mm-hmm. And Milton says that's that's a sin. That's pride. That's that's connected to a turning away from God's original plan which was unadornment. You do what you do. Uh we're all in this together. No one has any more power than anyone else. Okay, no one man has any more power than anyone else. He right. definitely believed in the the um, the the subjugation of women. And you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine about this uh, a while ago, and he said, "Why was that?" I just said misogyny. That's it. There's yeah. no other reason. He oh, was yeah. just a misogynist jerk. I mean, it's amazing just how much the uh, all of the. <clears throat> 
all of these thinkers we associate with like the sort of the first wave of egalitarian thought at, at no point really ever considered women in their in their schema. Yeah. John Locke, you know, John Milton, all these guys with all their, you know, well, of course, John Locke didn't even consider uh, people who happen to be born in Africa to be part of his imagined realm of equals all, you know, voluntarily exchanging goods and whatever. But it's just, it's just kind of astonishing to, to really think about. Like, yeah. you guys just couldn't take, you have all this, you have this radical critique of these hierarchies around you and you can't take it one step to include the person who lives in your home. I mean, yeah. it's just, uh, anyway, <laughs> it's very frustrating. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. All right. So then um, he, I, I think listeners know our politics by this point. Oh, uh, yeah, probably so. Um, we, don't, we don't really keep it anyway, under a bushel, do we? He, uh, he was nearly executed, but um, a, a lot of people went to bat for him, basically sort of arguing, here's this poor old guy. He's blind. What can he do? Uh, even some of his political enemies were like, look, just let the guy go. So he was he was more or less left in peace. They, they rescinded the, the warrant for his arrest, and um, he was left in peace, kind of hung out in London for a bit, and then sort of retired to this cottage out in the middle of nowhere where he um, – he dictated Paradise Lost, Samson Agonistes, Paradise Regained, uh, and I believe a couple of other works to his daughters. And if you want to hear something really creepy, uh, the writing of Paradise Lost, it was dictation, essentially. Yeah. And uh, he, he, w- he said he would wake up and have his morning milking. <laughs> so his daughters uh, would all right. milk the poem from him. Yeah. Okay, he died of kidney failure. The end. All right. So, <laughs> what? There, there's a lot to 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 traverse here, but the, yeah. the sort of central event that I think uh, occurred in his life, we sort of talked about it, was the English Civil War. And I guess could you give us a little bit of background on that? Just if any of the listeners aren't quite familiar on that event in in British history. Yeah, sure. And it's one that I I I, I don't. Um, uh, have any pretensions toward anything like uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of or anything like that. Um, but it, it's, it's a fascinating and very complex conflict. The English Civil War basically was a struggle among the uh, it, it was it was the it was the military and political expression of a class phenomenon which had been building for a couple of centuries by this point all across Europe, but especially in uh, in Great Britain, where you had a political system which was still very much under the dominance of uh, monarchies, uh, a, a monar- a, an aristocracy surmounted by a monarchy, and, and increasingly, especially with Charles, kind of modeling himself after the absolute monarchies which were developing on the continent. Um, and that was in, in pretty bitter conflict with where the kind of dynamism and growth in power was at this point, which was in the wealthy commoners, uh, people who people who basically in our society would absolutely be considered elite. Um, but at, because they had the legal status of commoner, they were shut out from political power in a, in a way that was extremely frustrating to them because, of course, they were bankrolling. Uh, through their merc- mercantile activity and all that, all of the uh, the crowns, you know, aristocratic yeah. activities. Um, so this kind of cracks open uh, in the middle of the 17th century with the struggle between the royalists and the parliamentarians for ver- for many, many, many very, very complicated reasons. But it kind of shakes out that it takes on a religious element as well because not not only because Charles himself was uh, was Catholic. But it sort of the like not just the, the the Catholic Church was of course tied in with the continental aristocracy who hadn't gone Protestant and all that. But in in Great Britain, you still had the or I guess I you know the 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 Kingdom of England. Um, the established Protestant Church there was still very much tied in with the aristocracy and those kinds of power centers um, because it was essentially like you know how uh the uh when geo was discontinued but then chevrolet sold the the geo prism as the chevrolet prism <laughs> sure it was a bit like that you know that's kind of the that's very that's simplifying <laughs> a lot but that's also why there was such a thing as puritans because there were these people who saw that like well wait a minute this is still pretty much catholicism we just call it anglicanism anyway right. those kind of high church elements sort of uh, their loyalties shift fell you know, as it all shook out th- those religious loyalties fell in among the political loyalties to the royalists and the aristocrats whereas the more radical reformers the 
the nonconformists, the uh, the Puritans, shook out being politically and militarily on the side of Parliament and the parliamentarians and this bourgeois class. This was this was basically England's bourgeois revolution, um, yeah. which uh, you know we had ours in the American Revolution, um, and of course the French had theirs in 1789. Um, right. But so this and what I what I thought was interesting thinking about this these circumstances is that. Um, I think Milton kind of has a bit of a parallel with Montaigne in some respects in that he was now Montaigne, of course, was playing it cool as a go between between right. the, to the two violent religious factions in the civil war that tore France apart a century earlier. You know, and Milton was, of course, very much a partisan of the, the radical parliamentarians, but he was a kind of a a person of kind of middling distinction who rose to power and influence and also shaped the literally shaped the language of this regime and English thereafter, you know, much as Montaigne, much as, as you mentioned, like, you know, French writers after Montaigne have to respond to Montaigne somehow. Um, So I thought that was kind of interesting to think about them as kind of similar figures in that respect. But, uh, but yeah, so, so it it was the English civil war is, is many things to many people, (laughs) but, um, but it does represent a kind of cracking open of political possibilities that I think made the kinds of arguments Milton wanted to make religiously possible because not only did you have the, um, you know, I already mentioned that Milton was a very staunch Republican um, and he wanted to sort of abolish the whole aristocracy and all that. There were people that were more radical than that. You had segments uh, of these sort that cropped up during the English revolution. I'm sorry, the, uh, the English civil war, which, which usually came out of, um, veteran communities, basically people who had been demobilized from the parliament, uh, the parliamentary army, um, where you had uh, sects like the, the levelers, who by their name, yeah. of course, you would think they, well, they're there to tamp down on these uh, inequalities. And you had, and, and they were, you know, they might be considered kind of the moderate radicals. And you had the diggers, which I always love their name, that like, well, what's more level than leveling? <laughs> Digging. And who were radical egalitarians. And, and really, they're a fascinating bunch of people that I really, uh, I, I wish they had a better go of it. But, um, but it, it does kind of create this, 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 this space. And it, and it does mean that there is, there is an absolutely essential role for a regime propagandist because yeah. there are so many voices competing in this new uh, – the internet of the age, which was the cheaply mass-produced pamphlet that if you are allied with the powers that be, they have an interest in like, hey, where's a guy who can get our message across eloquently and convincingly? Oh, John Milton. Let's get let's get him on board. So I think right. his, his is a career that – his is a career that could not have happened at any other time. And and you, you can really say that about any anyone I think, but I think it's I think it's especially notable in the case of John Milton, and and especially considering that his when I was reading Paradise Lost, I, I read it with a with a kind of close eye for when he would get into the theological weeds and like be, yeah. tr- be trying to score theological points with how he's telling this ostensibly sort of pan Christian story um, yeah. because because no matter you know because because it is I think he was kind of going back to like okay. You know, this is a, a foundational. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to use the word myth, and I don't mean it necessarily to mean a thing that didn't happen, but rather as a as a a story which conveys meaning. Um, this yeah. was a this was a core myth of just about every expression of Christianity that exists in the world at the time and today. Um, yeah, and so that was kind of a way of being almost ecumenical about it. Like I'm going to write an epic poem for Christendom, but he does manage to sneak in some some of his own Miltonian ideas about predestination and about uh i i guess the uh there's kind of some interesting stuff i i should have taken notes about it um when i was while i was reading and i could i could recall it a little better um but uh there was this oh he had a, he had that extensive kind of aside about how uh people shouldn't about how people should stop being prudes about good old-fashioned uh doing it as long as yeah. it's within the bonds of marriage, because it's the most natural and healthy thing in the world, and God made it, and it's great. And he also created marriage as a way to make it not so destructive, because, yes, it can be powerful. It just goes on this long thing about how everyone needs to quit being uptight about people enjoying themselves in the marriage bed, which I thought was like yeah. kind of – which is an interesting aside. And I'm like, oh, OK, this is directed at somebody <laughs> that Milton knows. Well, it's, it's because for Milton, uh, the, the engine of it all is love. 
the, he, he viewed, okay, as much of a chump as he was, as much a misogynist as he was, the way he writes about this is actually kind of sort of sex positive because what, what he ends up articulating is this idea that, um, love is not finite that the more you give the more it's received the more is given back to you which becomes this kind of expanding loop it's like um a perpetual motion machine that picks up steam and goes faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and sex would be an expression unfallen sex is an expression of that yeah because it's sort of like ongoing pleasure that is reciprocal for both parties. When Adam and Eve eat the apple and then have this kind of wild orgiastic sex, he writes about it in terms that are almost masturbatory, where they're so obsessed with their own pleasure that they're not caring about the pleasure of the other person. Um, in, in fact, that's one of the critiques that Milton seems to have of Eve if you look at it very closely, she's kind of sort of masturbating at a couple of points. Yeah, yeah. Um, she is in love with herself and her own reflection. He does this weird thing when she first appears or, or like when she's telling the story of when she first came into being. She woke up and looked at herself in the mirror and fell in love with herself. There's this sort of um, short-circuited self-regard that goes on. And then uh, God sort of – taps her on the shoulder and says, hey, look at that guy. And yeah. she sees Adam and says, oh, yeah, yeah he's yeah. hot. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, part of – but it's it's sort of like this – what Milton describes as a – or what he seems to see as a kind of short-circuiting of desire. And it also directly recalls the the Hermetica, the, the sort of ancient heretical text, but um, in the Hermetica, the sort of foundational myth is that the god came down to earth to kind of play as a human and then saw itself in uh, – saw itself reflected in the water and said, hey, man, this is kind of awesome. I think I'm going to be this for a while because this is really pretty cool. Yeah. And then forgot about the divinity within. Um, Milton takes that, wrenches it into a Christian context, and makes it mean something else. Yeah, but yeah, and the other place that I would see the the theolo- I mean, the theological argument is all over this. But the specifically Calvinist one is, you know, okay, God's sort of rant about predestination. But you see all this other stuff in the spontaneous praise. Like mm-hmm. when Adam and Eve pray, there's no ritual to it. There's no liturgy to it. It's just they feel something good and want to give love to God and he responds and reciprocates. Yeah, that, and that's... For uh, Milton is... It, it's the unadorned prayer. Exactly. And and uh, I, I to um, it's made pretty explicit when Adam at one point um, is offering as he, he knows he knows he's screwed up and he's saying, oh, uh, God, I can. Uh, oh, I can build you little altars all over the place. And he's specifically dissuaded from that. And and yeah. that, I th- that I think is another one of the Miltonian touches. Like this was part yeah. of his anti idolatry fervor, which, you know, the Puritans had in spades. Where Milton was taking it, you know, usually that sort of expresses itself in like they would just have very plain buildings to have their services in. So Milton takes it one step further and was like, no, you don't need a place to have a service. Because, it, yeah. because then you start thinking of that place as being especially holy. And then what are you doing? Well, you're making, a, well, you're making a, an idol out of a place. Yeah. And this is, this is really kind of crazy. But Milton seems to suggest in some places that God is all. That God mm-hmm. is always already a part of everything. Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm misreading or, or reading accurately. This this is the way that Blake read Milton, um, and Blake seems to take this kind of Gnostic heretical uh, idea as far as you possibly can. Like Blake seems to suggest that rocks have souls. Yeah. That all of creation is a part of the divine impulse, so all of the creation is necessarily divine. Milton kind of sort of suggests some of the same here and there. Uh, I, I don't think it's as overt. I don't think it's as much a part of that. But that would be why he doesn't want altars. That's 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 making an idol of something that that doesn't 
need to be. Um, all of creation is already a part of the divine. Don't try to elevate your action within it. Praise, love, enjoy, be part of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this this real kind of, like I said, an eco critical way of of reading Milton. I think it's a little uh, it's a little Spinozan at the risk yeah. of getting out of my depth again. Um, but yeah, uh, I I, uh, I I hate to say this, I'm I'm under a rather um, I'm under a rather uh, tight time constraints. But I wanted to I wanted to give you that fair warning because I know that you wanted some. You want some closure. You wanted this episode to be like a way of putting a bow on your twenty years, your twenty years of Milton. Um, and it's not gonna be because we <laughs> just broached the surface. So I, I hate to say it, but I think this might have to be a two-parter. Okay, we can definitely do that. Yeah. Hey, that's a great right. idea because there, there is there is a lot more to talk about though. Yeah, you know, we went into this man. See, this is why I love doing the show with you, Claude. We went into this feeling kind of a little exhausted and a little not too enthusiastic about the work that we read, right? We were like, ah, Milton, blah, 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 blah. You know, we were, we were grousing, but we get talking about it. We get talking to each other about it. We're just, we're sort of, I don't know. It it brings more joy in the text out for me anyway. I guess I can't speak for you, but uh, (laughs) it's, it's really like, I've gotten more excited about it as we talk about it, but you know what? You're right. I say, I I love this. An extemporaneous two-parter in the works. Yeah. But let, let me leave you with this. Um, the other thing that, you know, we, we haven't even really gotten into the meat of what occurs and, and <laughs> mostly I think next time yeah. we should sort of focus on Satan and Satan is self-deluded. Yeah, uh, yeah. You can be really sucked into Satan for, you know, good reasons. Milton makes it so that Satan is attractive. We'll talk about that next time. But the the other thing that I want to sort of end on is thinking about this work as an epic. Um, this, this is a work that situates itself within the epic tradition, but does this weird thing by trying to subvert that epic tradition. Um, yeah. Okay. When we think of epics, we we typically think of those things we were forced to read in ninth or tenth grade, uh, <laughs> the Iliad or the Odyssey. Yeah, the you know, sections of the Iliad or sections of the Odyssey are usually what we have to read. You know, when we're in the early stages of high school, but for seventeenth century Europe, the those are cool. But the real epic would have been Virgil's Aeneid, and writers would try to place themselves in the the epic tradition by sort of echoing the Aeneid in a couple of ways. The Aeneid yeah. is the story of the foundation of Rome. So you've got this kind of proto-nationalist view of what the epic is and what the epic can do. It can capture kind of the the place or it can exemplify the place. Yeah. So all throughout Europe from you know throughout this this era called the Renaissance you've got these attempts at at, at epics. At, yeah, national um, epics, yeah. Like uh well the the fairy queen I think would be emblematic yeah. of that for the for the English. Yeah. That's that's one that Milton is definitely drawing upon. You've got yeah. the Fairy Queen, uh, Spencer's Fairy Queen, in in England, which is I, I urge everybody to read it. It's it's a really fantastic and fun read. Um, it's it's very um, it's very sci fi fantasy <laughs> yes. and, and a lot of fun because of that. Uh, the Song of Roland uh, is a kind of early chivalric epic ish kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, that's that's the the French. Song of Roland. You've got the um, Orlando epics, Orlando Enamorado and Orlando Furioso in Italy. You've also got Jerusalem Divided, an Italian epic about the Crusades. Uh, you've got the my my favorite weirdo epic is Camoyan's uh, Lucieds, which is an epic about Vasco da Gama and exploration. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's just kind of funky, and then he throws in some mermaids and just like weird mythological creatures in there. It's 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 really kind of funky. Um, but Milton, uh, he'd wanted to write an epic early on on, you know, an English theme. And he would thought about a chivalric epic, but he changed his mind, you know, late when it came to write it. And if you take a look at the very opening of the poem, you see how he's situating himself in the epic tradition. He's situating himself in it by subverting it. Mm-hmm. Um if you look at the first basically verse paragraph of the poem, 
count the times first keeps coming up of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with the loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire the shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning, how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Okay. Who's his muse? It's the same spirit that uh, spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Uh-huh. So my muse is older and better than all them other muses. Or if science he'll delight thee more in Siloa's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Ionian mount. Okay, so I'm going to outdo all of that old, old stuff. Like everything that's come before, um, I'm going to write above and beyond that. While it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme, and chiefly thou, spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me, for thou knowest thou from the first wast present. My muse goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And my muse can tell me everything that happened way before Homer even set foot on the earth. Yeah. So he is basically taking himself, taking his belated epic and saying, no, no, you know what? I'm writing thousands of years after Homer, but I came first. <laughs> yeah. So that'll be great. Yeah. So next time we'll talk about uh, about about uh, Paradise Lost as epic and about Satan as epic hero. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I look forward to it. That's, this is good. We're getting some real meat out of this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got through um, three pages of 10 pages of notes. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll continue this further on down the line, but uh, thank you, Cannonball listeners, for uh, putting up with us. And we hope we won't bore you to death with Milton, but there, d- damn it, this book is too rich. It's, it's very rich. There's cool stuff to talk about. It's going to be it's going to be good. Stay tuned, everybody. Uh, all right. Stay <laughs> tuned. So we'll be coming up soon with uh, uh, hopefully this the second and last episode on Paradise Lost. <laughs> and uh, if it keeps continuing on, I guess I'll have to keep continuing on. All right. <laughs> Take care. All right. Night, man.